When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. <coughs> All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The word of the Lord. I pray you please join with me in prayer. Father, you are uh, you are the God who turns our attention to you. Uh, not because you need our attention, but because we need to know you. And so, Father, um, recognizing again in your presence that what we are reflecting on, the words that we are hearing here, are uh, extraordinary, that they come from you, that you speak to us through them. Lord, we ask that you would help us to taste them, help us to experience them, help us to be changed by them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So since Easter, we have been uh, considering what you might consider to be Jesus' final words before going to the cross, what's sometimes known as the upper room discourse. And if you think about it, on those rare occasions when someone is knowing that they are about to die and has this opportunity to bring people together and speak to them, you know that what they are saying in that moment matters to them deeply. This is the thing that they want those that they love to know above all else. And that's what we've been listening to in the last few weeks. And, and perhaps maybe you've noticed as, as Jesus gives different instructions, as he tries to prepare disciples for the difficulty of the world, what he comes back to again and again and again is the relationship he has with the Father and the spirit that he and the Father share. As Jesus is moving towards his death, what he most wants to talk about is the Trinity. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which I just mentioned, is an understanding that the God that lies at the heart of the universe is one God, and yet he is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is from passages such as John 13 through 17 that Christians have come to this conviction, because Jesus speaks in very real ways about that. But he's not just describing any longer this extraordinary reality. In chapter 17, we see something amazing. We actually get to see it almost in action. Because here we 
speaking to the Father in a way that, that actually describes the relationship that they share. I, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's this t- verse 5, he talks about, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. There is this sense that we are being given this just glimpse into the very inner life of God himself. And there is far more here than we can possibly comprehend. This morning, in fact, I I want us, actually, I'm just going to be focusing on only the very first verse. We'll leave the rest of the passage there is for context to give us a sense. But this first verse where, where Jesus begins his prayer saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And what I hope is as we just reflect on what that is teaching, what Jesus is showing us, that we would come to see the beauty of the Trinity and be changed. So I want us to notice three things that I think when Jesus is even beginning this prayer, he is showing us in the way he relates to the Father. And the first thing I want us just to notice quite simply is the extraordinary and deep mutuality that you see here between Jesus and the Father. He says, as we just said, Father, the hours glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. If you go a little bit further, he says, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me. Do you hear there's kind of a back and forth? When we go later on in verse 10, Jesus says, All that is mine are yours, and yours are mine. There is this perfect sharing that we are meant to understand between Jesus, who is the Son, and God, who is the Father. Throughout John, we see this being told repeatedly by the way Jesus speaks to it. Jesus says, everything I have, everything I have has been given by the Father. The Father gives the Son everything. The Father delights in bringing glory to Jesus, the Son. And meanwhile, Jesus, as he receives everything from the Father, delights in only doing the Father's will, only what he's heard from the Father. He delights in being, bringing glory to the Father. Back and forth, there is this sharing, there's this joyful giving at the very heart of God himself, we are meant to understand, is, is love. The Father and the Son giving of each other in the love of the Spirit. The Christian understanding of the Trinity is that at the very heart of God is a relationship of love. And what that means is that the Christian understanding of the universe is that at the very heart of the universe is love. I was listening a few weeks ago um, to a sermon by Tim Keller on this very passage. It's been very formative for me. And he pointed out, I think, in a very helpful way, that if you think about it, almost every conception of this world ultimately sees the world at its core to be about violence. So you can see this in, in kind of the ancient religions. If you've ever read the creation myth, the Enuma Elish, that's the Babylonian creation myth, ultimately. This world was made when Marduk and Tiamat go to battle, and Marduk chops up Tiamat, and out of Tiamat's body pieces make the world, and then when they want to make human beings, they realize, well, we need to sacrifice another god, so they kill another god, so they can use the blood to make human beings. It's not a pretty story. And, and the, Greek, the Greek myths aren't even any better. I mean, if you know anything about the Titans versus the gods, and, and Zeus, Chopping up Cronus. I do not know what it is about chopping up gods, but it seems to be core to these stories. And then that's how the world is made. Again and again, you have just stories of this is what the world is. It's, it's these personal deities 
states that are enacting violence. And if that's how the world is, then, then really power is what matters and all the weak have to do is just kind of accept their fate. That's the ancient understanding. Now, we don't have that in our modern conception, but if you think about it, we've just generally moved from an idea of the universe being about personal violence to being about impersonal violence. Because how is it generally the way that the world is conceived? Progress comes through death, through survival of the fittest, through destruction of those things that are weak, those things that are inferior, so that those things that are stronger can continue again and again. Things get better through destruction to the power, to the strong gets the good stuff, and the weak gets to die. At the heart of the universe is impersonal violence. Regardless of these visions, either way, what is being told is that when you strip things down and move beyond the sentimentality and the cozy feelings that we try to pretend, really, reality at its core is about violence. The strong winning, the weak dying. And so if that is how the world is, it only makes sense that in the, the Roman Empire, mercy was discouraged. Why would you want to put a drain on the strong by caring for the weak? Infants were left out to die if they weren't wanted. Sick were abandoned. The poor were just left to be poor because that's how the world is. Violence lies at the core. And I don't think it's any accident that in the modern day, as, as we continue to be influenced by this kind of newer idea of impersonal violence, that you see those who are disabled are increasingly being dealt with by either being deported or euthanized. It makes sense if the strong are all that matter and the weak should be just left to die. It makes sense, and then Christianity comes in and doesn't make sense to anyone. In the, in the third and fourth century, those babies that were abandoned by the Roman families are now adopted by the Christians. Those poor and those sick during a pandemic, when everyone was saying, I need to stay away from whoever's sick because I don't want to get sick. Christians, historically, were the ones who came in and cared for the sick, even though that meant they died. There's this wonderful um, quote that I love. In the fourth century, there's this this Roman emperor who's opposing Christianity and really does not want to see Christianity continue to spread. And he's so frustrated. He's like, they not only take care of their own poor, but they take care of our poor as well. Like, who can compete with that is what he's saying. It doesn't make sense, but it does because from a Christian perspective, the world that they see does not have violence at the very heart. But at the very heart of all things is God. And it is a God who is a relationship of eternal love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if that's what is realer than anything else, that, if that is what, if you peel everything back, it's at the core, at the very core of everything is love, then of course you want to be a society that loves and cares for the weak. When you boil things down, you ultimately have two ways that you can view the Either the world is founded on chaos and violence with the strong defeating the weak, or the doctrine of the Trinity, at the very heart of everything, is a relationship of personal, divine love. And my guess is whether you would identify yourself as a Christian or not, you know which one of these is actually true. It's a cliche, I know, but you've probably heard it said that there is no one who on his deathbed wishes he had spent more time in the office. 
Right? There's no one who goes, oh man, I wish I'd gotten that promotion. Or, oh man, I wish I just put a few more hours each week so I could have gotten that sale. No, what do people, when they're about to die, when they're facing the end of their life, long for? They wish they had connected more with those that they love. Why? Because we know it's not ultimately about power or achievement, that this world and its heart is ultimately about love. And that's because at the very heart of the universe is a God who himself is this mutual, joyful giving between Father and Son and the power of the Spirit. It is at the very heart a God who is love himself that stands in the middle of reality. That's, that's the first thing that as we reflect on what Jesus is saying here, we see. And I, and I want to push beyond that to, to, to another point that's closely connected, that not only as we reflect on what Jesus is saying, that, that love is at the heart of reality, but love is also at the heart of what glory is. So again, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And I want to just ask, what is he saying at the very beginning here when he says, the hour has come? Well, if we are, we're kind of reading through the Gospel of John, I think we would know by now, because again and again, Jesus talks about the hour. And when he's talking about the hour, he's talking about his death. He's talking about going to the cross. So just a little earlier, Jesus in chapter 12 will say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and then he immediately starts talking about his death. Which, when we think about it for a moment, leads us to kind of a paradox. Because consider what the cross is. The cross is anti-glory, if anything is. The cross is about humiliation and disfigurement and, and just dehumanizing. And yet Jesus is saying, this is the time of my glory. A New Testament commentator, Don Carson, puts it this way. He says, it's not just that the shame of the cross is followed by the glory of the exaltation. We know that will happen. After Jesus dies, then Jesus will be resurrected by the Father and the Son. But, but Carson rightly says, if you understand what the Gospel of John is saying, it's not just it starts with shame and then moves towards glory. He says that the glory is already fully displayed in the shame. Jesus' death was itself the supreme manifestation of Jesus' glory. When Jesus hung on the cross, disfigured, that was glory. Because we are meant to understand that when glory is shining fullest, it is seen in love. When Jesus goes to the cross, he is giving everything in love. And in doing so, he is filled with glory. Which means at the very heart of what glory is, we find love. Now, does that sound like overly abstract, overly academic, at the very heart of glory is love? Maybe, but that's only because we don't use the word glory a whole lot, do we? But, we? but we are constantly driven by a desire for it, whether we name it as such or not. We have within us this desire to be part of something good, something great even. And, and to have that goodness or greatness in some ways validated by others being able to see it and admire it. We, we see it come out everywhere. Um, if you're like middle-aged like me, you might remember a song by the Counting Crows, uh, Mr. Jones and Me. Do some of you remember that song? Um, 
So, so apparently, the, the lead singer was writing this song in a bar, frustrated because their band hadn't made it. And if you, if you listen to the lyrics, the song is all about a longing for glory. He says, uh, man, I wish I was beautiful. And then the song goes on, when I look at the television, I want to see me staring right back at me. We all want to be big stars, but we don't know why, we don't know how. But when everybody loves me, I want to be just as happy as I can be. It's a song longing for glory. Now the irony is actually is that the lead singer ended up after seeing these desires fulfilled and seeing him staring right back at himself in music videos and TV, he ended up having a nervous breakdown. Because it was too much because it wasn't really what he was longing for. There are all sorts of other ways that we can see this, this desire for glory within us. I mean, why do we spend so much money on, on, on expensive clothing or on like, working out or on beauty products? I mean, we, we want to appear. We want, we want to be seen in a certain way. I mean, think about it. Why, why does someone sometimes spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars on a beautiful sports car when when you are driving a sports car, you never actually get to look at it. <laughs> it's so that others can see you, right? It's, there's, a, there's a longing for glory. And it's not just in appearances. We can think of it also just in, in, in work, the desire for achievement, the desire to kind of do something that we feel like is lasting. There is this longing in us for something that is good, for greatness, that even can be seen by others. And those things that I've mentioned, fame and, and, and appearance and achievement, they're not bad. But they're not it. They're not where true greatness and glory is found. Just consider what we've just been talking about. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is, he is naked, he is disfigured, so gruesome that we would turn our face from what we are seeing. And what's more, at the cross, the whole point of the Roman crucifixion was to make it clear for everyone that this person has failed. This person has been conquered. This person is less than a human. That's the point of the cross, utter humiliation. And yet, at the very end, when Jesus breathes his last, and a Roman centurion is right by him who doesn't know much about Jesus at all. What does he say? He says, surely this man was the Son of God. Why? Because in a way that perhaps he couldn't even name, he recognized that what he had just seen was glory. Glory not in just human pictures of greatness or appearance, but glory because this person had poured out his life And again, I think we understand this deep down, that that is where glory and greatness truly is to be found. Let me just, I want you to think of four people for a moment. First, let's think of Genghis Khan. I was hearing the other day someone saying that in the last millennium, there's no person who's probably had more importance in terms of success as military leader than Genghis Khan. He formed the largest continuous empire ever, killed 40 million people doing it in the process, but by any standards of military, he was a success. Now, think of the second person, Audrey Hepburn. I was looking and, you know, the, the internet, which is always telling me the truth, tells me that she was the most beautiful person of the 20th century. She's this classy actress that everyone reveres. Third person I want you to think about is 
Mr. Rogers. A person who is known not for being especially attractive or being wealthy. He, he's known simply just kind of for his kindness, his kindness especially to children. Okay, Genghis Khan, Audrey Hepburn, Fred Rogers. Now here's the fourth person I want you to think of. Think of a child that you love. Maybe it's your own child. Maybe it's a nephew, a niece, a grandchild. Which of those three people, Genghis Khan, Audrey Hepburn, or Fred Rogers, would you like your child to grow up to be? My guess is there's not even a question for you. Sure, success is great, but Genghis Khan, not so much. Audrey Hepburn, but oh, but someone with the love that you see demonstrated in someone like Fred Rogers, someone with that kindness, that, you know, that is good, that is great, because, because at the very heart of glory is love, because the very heart of the universe is Father, Son, and Spirit, the glorious God who himself is love. When we are longing for glory, that is where it is to be found. So I want to bring this out to just one third also crucial observation that I think flows from this very same verse. In some ways, if I connect the two dots, it brings us to this third. And that is when we hear this prayer where Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. If we understand what he is saying, we realize that this world is not an arena that demands competition and achievement, but at the heart of this world is a home So I think many of us, perhaps all of us, deep down have some degree of a fear of missing out. I'm not talking about the FOMO of like something happening tomorrow that you're not going to experience. I mean something deeper where we realize that there are good things in life and we're afraid that if we somehow don't measure up, we won't experience them. Maybe there is a depth of relationship to be had that we might fail on, or achievement that we will miss out on. We have a deep down fear, many of us, that we will not be enough to experience what we most long to experience. And again, if, if we go back to this previous understanding of the world, if, if, if survival of the fittest is what really defines reality, that is a completely genuine fear because not everyone will be able to experience the best. The strong will win, the weak will die out. It's a zero-sum game, which means life is just about achieving and winning and doing more than anyone else and it's a non-stop anxiety fest. But, if at the very heart of all things, is Father and Son, in love, mutually self-giving, in the power of the Spirit, there is a very different reality. And it is the reality that we hear in Jesus' prayer. Because when you see this opening longing that Jesus expresses, there's not just a love that we see going on between Jesus and the Father, is there? When he says, glorify your Son, that implies something outside. To glorify is for someone else to experience the glory. Jesus and the Father, their love is moving outwards in the longing that others might be able to enjoy with them. What we see in this prayer, what we see throughout chapter 17, is that the longing of the Father, Son, and Spirit is to bring people in to their relationship of love so that they might experience 
transcend as well. There's a lot there, so let me try to um, let me try to kind of tease it out a little bit. So in verse three, Jesus says, "This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." So what that tells us is that as Jesus is praying for glorification, for him to be glorified, as the Father is glorified. He's praying it so that people, so that, so that you and me would know, would know God. And not just kind of in a fact way of knowing, but knowing in a way where it says they experience eternal life, that somehow to know the way that the Father and the Son are, to experience the reality of who they are, makes us alive. And in fact, that, that change is so profound that later on in chapter 17, Jesus will talk about God dwelling in us, those of us who've come to know God, and us dwelling in God, which is the very same language Jesus uses to speak of his relationship to the Father. He dwells in the Father, and the Father dwells in him. In other words, what Jesus is praying for is that we would so come to know God that we would be brought into the very relationship of God and experience the love that the Father has for the Son as he has it towards us. 